Welcome to this week's sermon from Amblecote Christian Centre. So this morning we're going to continue our series looking at Luke, and we're in Luke chapter 14. And because uh, I don't think I'm particularly good at reading the scriptures, I've asked somebody else to do it. Is that all right? So I'm going to invite Anne, who's going to come and read for us this morning. If you've got your Bibles, it's Luke chapter 14, verses 1 to 24. And then I'm going to share a little bit about those verses. Thank you, Anne. Morning. Nice to see you all. So we're reading from Luke 14, 1 to 24. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation, if you want to change your phones to that translation and follow it. There are three headings in this passage of Scripture. Jesus heals on the Sabbath. Jesus teaches about humility and the parable of the great feast. One Sabbath day, Jesus went to eat dinner in the home of a leader of the Pharisees, and the people were watching him closely. There was a man there whose arms and legs were swollen. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in religious law, is it permitted in the law to heal on the Sabbath? Or not? When they refused to answer, Jesus touched the sick man and healed him and sent him away. Then they turned and said, Which of you doesn't work on the Sabbath? If your son or your cow falls into a pit, don't you rush to get him out? Again, they could not answer. When Jesus noticed that all who had come to dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honour near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. When you're invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honour. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat. Then you will be embarrassed And you will have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he will come and say, Friend, we have a better place for you. Then you will be honoured in front of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then he turned to his host. When you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives and rich neighbours, for they will invite you back. And that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. Hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, Oh, what a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied with this story, A man prepared a great feast, sent out many invitations. 
When the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to tell the guests, come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. One said, I've just bought a field and must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five pairs of oxen and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant returned and told his master what they had said. His master was furious and said, Go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. After the servant had done this, he reported, There is still room for more. So his master said, go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full. For none of those I first invited will get even the smallest taste of my banquet. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Anne. So beautifully read. Would you agree with me? Absolutely beautifully read. So... Uh, anyone having anybody to dinner today? Anybody invited to lunch? Or have you invited somebody to lunch? Well, this is basically the story that happens here. Jesus, um, <laughs> hopefully it'll be a slightly more comfortable environment than the dinner that Jesus attends here. Um, hopefully it'll be a relaxed affair. Um, but I just, I, you know, if you wonder what it might be like to have Jesus to dinner, I think in this passage uh, we might get a little window on what it might mean to have um, a dinner conversation with Jesus. In fact, um, here's Jesus with a bunch of top-notch spiritual leaders having dinner, and I'd suggest at the end of it, they may well have been suffering somewhat with indigestion. This is not meek and mild Jesus, who's sort of happy to um, go along with um, things as they are. This is Jesus who who is who's confrontational. In fact, here he's confronting that you know the nation's spiritual leadership of the day and he doesn't pull any punches and uh, as with all of these passages when we come to Luke uh, they're stuffed full of potential for us who preach and my challenge always is to stick to my 15 or 20 minutes which is why I subtracted the reading from my time so that I had a little bit of time to carry on and, and when you read a passage like this, there's lots of passages in the Bible. Sometimes you say, what does this say to us living in the 21st century? Well, this morning I want to tell you this passage has masses to say to us who live in the 21st century. Because God is timeless, isn't he? Would you agree with me? He's timeless. In fact, recently I've been listening to, or over the last 18 months, I've been listening to a lot of some of the greatest thinkers alive you know, today, cultural commentators mainly, who all talk about the need for us, humanity, to recover ancient wisdom. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Now, ancient wisdom can mean lots of things. I fully understand that. But a lot of them talk about the fact that we have rejected um, our, a, a Judeo-Christian foundation and its impact on humanity. And many are calling for the recovery of ancient wisdom. Why is that? Because God is timeless and speaks to all generations forever, doesn't he? And so does his word. Stick to your notes, Adrian. So I'm going to talk 
um, a little bit about uh, this morning about what this, as an ancient piece of wisdom, has to say to us today, and there's much for it to say. So I'm going to talk about three things. In the first six verses, Jesus talks about the Sabbath. What I want to suggest is that he confronts a performance-driven culture of the day. Um, really, primarily among the Pharisees in relation to how they know God. And in this case, by this very compliant observance of Sabbath, we too, would you agree, live in a performance-driven culture. Uh, it exists everywhere. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. And indeed, Tim's talking about some of this on his podcast. The second seven verses say something about our obsession and anxiety with status, with power, control, and influence. Um, where these individuals sat said something about how important they were. Nothing's changed. Human beings, uh, most of us, if not all of us, are obsessed in some shape or form with status. Particularly, I think, in comparing ourselves with one another. It's a part. One of the fractures in humanity is that very thing. And God is speaking into that in this passage. And the third thing I want to do, the last nine verses, talk of the day of a different table. Here, Jesus is at the Pharisees' table. Jesus says God's going to set a table and the rules of engagement are totally different. So he's talking about the coming kingdom that Jesus is going to establish in his death and resurrection. It's not the great wedding feast in Revelation. It's about the kingdom of God. So they're the three things we're going to look at. Performance-driven culture, anxiety about status, and thirdly, about the table that God sets. So let's begin then by looking at this whole idea um, uh, that that exists in the Pharisees, that possibly exists in us today to a greater or, or greater or lesser degree, that success is solely determined by the way I perform. Jesus arrives um, on the Sabbath. He, I think this is a strategic thing Jesus does, particularly recorded in the Gospel of Luke, because he does this in chapter 6, he does it in chapter 13, and now he does it in chapter 14. He arrives on the Sabbath. And he uses the Sabbath as a tool to really get a point home to his audience, the Pharisees. Before I talk a little bit more about um, this whole idea of Sabbath, uh, I'd say two things. Number one, Sabbath is not about attending church on a Sunday. When I grew up, probably like, probably few, few of you found like this, but Sabbath, as I understood it all those years ago, was about, was, was about going to church on a Sunday. Jesus is not talking about going to church on a Sunday, but I may talk about that later on. Um, and uh, actually, the second thing is, if you want to find out much more about Sabbath, I did a series, our first um, sort of, um, what, what we call it, whole church teaching on this issue of Sabbath. Sabbath has a lot to say to us today uh, in our culture and in this particular moment of time, and I'd encourage you to access that, as Tim did a couple of weeks ago. Um, so what do I mean by Sabbath? Um, one of the ways that we can understand Sabbath rest is that in stopping, in resting, we make a declaration that you and I, humanity as a whole, are not defined by our performance. Work doesn't define you. I think this is hugely counter-cultural. The ideology, the way our Western world thinks, is, is largely one driven by commodity, 
and consumerism. What do I mean by that? That happiness really in all of its forms is something that we achieve or attain by our own hard work, our own hard labor, our performing well. And, and, and the psyche says a good life is the result of working harder and harder, being more and more successful. And what we do in this moment is we step onto a treadmill. And I would suggest that many of us either have been on or are on a treadmill in lots of different ways. And we'll look at that in a, in a moment. Underlying this way of thinking in the West, I would suggest, is a belief that freedom is the result of how well I perform. Let me just say that again. I think underlying this is the view that freedom is the result of how well I perform. So the better I do, the better life I can have, and the freer I become. I think the absolute opposite is true. Sabbath, as a concept, resists this idea. So when you think about Sabbath, what I want you to think about is freedom. Freedom from being a slave to an ever-ending need to perform well in order to secure an identity, to be someone, to secure a future, and to be safe. This is largely why we work, but that comes through understanding that we can't, that can't be achieved by our own performance. So in this passage, Jesus challenges the Pharisees about their understanding of Sabbath. They're obsessed with being compliant to the law or where the law was concerned. They could tick every single box in terms of being compliant. If you were, we had this phrase when I worked in the corporate world, there were a certain group of people who were in the upper quartile, which meant that in terms of performance, everybody's objective was to be in the upper quartile. In fact, in many people's minds, including my own, my objective was at least to be in the top 10%. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Perhaps you don't, but that was certainly how I felt. The Pharisees are right up there. They can tick every box. Their performance is amazing. They were making sure that they could be Sabbath compliant. They weren't going to get caught out. But in approaching life this way, they completely missed the point of Sabbath. Sabbath had become about their performance, their religious performance. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus heals a man to tell the truth about Sabbath. See, when Jesus touches this man, of whom we've read this morning, his swollen arms and legs are immediately healed. What happens is this man becomes more the person he was meant to be. This is the purpose of Sabbath. The reason to stop and rest is to remember that the freedom to be your true self is not the result of your hard work or your hard labor. God's purpose is that we would be fully the person he has destined us to be. How do I apply this today? What does this mean today? I'm, I'm touched by the words of Paul who says, We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I think what this base verse basically means is that you and I, humanity as a whole, we've failed to reach the fullness of what God intended for us as human beings. We are less human than God intended. And I think whether you're a believer or unbeliever, I think we all know this in a sort of way. And we try to sort it out in multiple ways. And one of them is that I think if I perform better, 
if I work harder and longer, then I've, I can find my true self. And of course, we end up believing that finding our true self relies on our hard work. I don't know about you, but we live in a culture where we've got to look better. Would you agree with me? And this goes to extremes of all sorts of surgery. Um, you know, ladies, you've got to get Botoxed. Men, you've got, well, we've all got to be fitter. Get some decent muscles. Be the best mum. Be the best dad. Be the best granddad. Cook well. Host great parties. Live a perfect life. And so it goes on. Would you agree with me? That we live largely in a culture that's like that. I call this a taste of hell. And let me suggest to you that the fires of hell are fanned into flame. One of the primary ways in our modern 21st century is social media. Social media fans into flame an obsession with individual performance where you are measured to a greater or lesser degree on how many people have said happy birth to you, birthday to you on Facebook. Can I get more than 69 that my mate had? Now, I don't, I don't actually know how many happy birthdays I got, but often this is the case, isn't it? So if I thought of how could we, how could we apply this, this whole idea that largely we're controlled by this desire to perform well. How could, how, what could we do this week? Here's a, here's a challenge. Stay off social media for a week. Stay off social media for a week. Here's an action for you to take away. So, performance driven. Secondly, I think this passage talks about an anxiety about status, or let's call it position, power, and influence. And let's just have a look at this. In, in terms of this meal, where you sat when you were invited to meal said something about your standing among the guests. There were seats to which greater honor was attached and attributed than others. So to be sat nearer to the host, particularly at his right hand, said something about your position, power, and influence compared to others. Um, now, we've not got, or we may not have, this sort of system of affirming status and standing, but I think we're broken just the same. Um, for example, if not... All of us, certainly most of us, in some shape or form, are slaves to comparing ourselves with others. Would you agree with me? Um, maybe as you become more mature, as life goes on, that's probably, you probably might be less inclined to do that because you don't match up quite so well. But certainly I think we've all found this to a greater or lesser extent. And I think this passage offers us a route out of that slavery. And uh, so I want to just talk about two things that Jesus does in this passage. In this passage, firstly, full of grace, he offers some advice, what I'd call within the parameters of the existing social system of the day. Jesus says it's better to take a lower seat and be moved up to a greater seat of honor than suffer the embarrassment of being moved down. I, I was really sort of quite struck by this. I love this about Jesus. He's so kind. He offers wisdom within the prevailing social system. Isn't that amazing? And, uh, and, and very encouraging. I don't know about you. Sometimes you think about your efforts, whether it's, for example, I do a little bit of work with our local authority in a civic capacity, and you sort of think, is it of really any value? Uh, but, but I'm encouraged that God can give me wisdom within the system that I'm working. Do you believe that? Wherever you are, this is a deep encouragement for us all, that what, whatever we're involved in, God can give us wisdom for the system that we're involved in. I find it deeply encouraging. 
And then he makes, of course, this well-quoted statement, a totally counter-cultural statement. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, here's a challenge. <laughs> so how might we live like that in a, cultural, in a, in a counter-cultural way? What, what might kingdom culture look like? How might we put that into practice? So let's listen to the words of Jesus. Here it is. So Jesus speaks directly to his host and addresses, in some ways in that moment, the very fabric of the honor and status structures of the ancient world. His advice to this figure of power, because that's who this individual is in the story, I think undermines the very social system that upholds that, that status difference. So Jesus tells the host, what does he tell the host? Not to invite friends and family or rich to meals. Why? And Jesus is clear, because they're able to repay with a corresponding invitation. Instead, Jesus calls for the inclusion of those that cannot return the invitation. The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. So here we go. Here's a really great piece of advice from Jesus on how to live humbly. In investment without expecting a return investment without expecting a return. Any of you that's worked in the commercial world early on in my career, that, uh, that famous phrase, uh, which was one of the key measures for our business, was ROC. Anybody know what that stands for? I'm sure some of you do. Return on capital. You would make no investment, zero investment, unless you were able to achieve a return on your capital invested. What's Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying sometimes, what does it mean to be humble? What does it mean to lay our life down for the sake of others? It might mean making an investment with a hope of zero return. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? And so counterculture. So where do we, how do we apply this? Where, can we, where do we start? And I thought I'd just ask you a simple question. Where are you investing knowing that you won't get a return? Where are you investing knowing that you won't get a return? And I wonder, the other question I ask myself is, how do I actively take the lowest seat? You know when you're in a conversation and somebody says something and you think, I think I've got a slightly better perspective on that than they have. And everything within you wants you... You probably don't feel like this. This is probably the competitive Adrian now. But I just thought I might drop this bit of wisdom out because I look so good. There's a confession. I don't do it very often, of course. <laughs> no, we you know what I mean? Why, why do I say that? Because I wonder if there's a position for me to take in the conversation that's less thinking about what I've got to say and more actively listening to what someone else has to say. Do you know what I mean? a practical way that we could possibly take the lowest seat. And then lastly, the third set of verses that we've read this morning, the last nine verses. Now we come to this final parable, the great feast. So Jesus is sort of saying, thanks for the invite, but there's a far more important meal to attend. Uh, that's nice of you. Thank you very much. Uh, so this parable looks forward to the great feast that God will lay um, before every people group 
So cutting across all historical divides between what Israel considered, uh, you know, between Israel considered holy and the Gentile nations, those considered unholy as a consequence of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's a story about Israel's invitation to participate in the kingdom inaugurated by Jesus, but talks of their unwillingness to come to the table God's set before them. So what can we say about this? It says lots about Israel, um, but what does this say for us? I wonder if we could say two things about this invitation to the Feast of God. Let me call it two ways that I think we can become blind to the truth of what God has prepared for us. I mean, firstly, I can't help thinking that Jesus is making a point to the Pharisees with their preoccupation with life according to their own religious tradition, which I think ultimately led them to be blind to the kingdom of God that was at hand in Christ. So you could say their spiritual pride blinded them to the truth of Jesus. And as I was looking at this, my heart's cry was, God, save me, save us from any sense of spiritual pride. It's easy, isn't it, to allow our own individual spiritual heritage or our collective spiritual heritage to impair our vision of who Jesus really is. And I was reflecting with a friend recently after we'd sort of got three quarters of the way through a ride about how, and, uh, and I think they shared this view, that reading and listening more widely in the recent years of our lives has opened our eyes to see the kingdom of God in a totally different way, in a fuller way. Um, very different to what I would have called my Pentecostal tradition. And you suddenly realize that some of the ways you've been brought up um, for which I give God thanks can, if we're not careful, blind us to the vast size, stature, and beauty of the God that we love and serve. So I wonder whether sometimes our religious tradition blinds us from the truth. And secondly, I think this verse reminds us of the dangers of prosperity. Uh, two of the characters in the parable have just made an acquisition. One had bought land, the other a yoke of oxen, and another's about to have a marriage celebration. I think one of the timeless warnings of the whole of Scripture is that of amnesia. In times of prosperity, it is so easy to forget the goodness of God and it's forgetfulness that divorces us from the truth of God, who he is, and his purpose for our lives. And that's why I think, or increasingly think, and Mr. Murray will be really happy about this, I'm sure. As I've read the Old Testament again, particularly I've been looking at the book of Leviticus, which is a fascinating book. It's full of liturgy. And at this, my old Pentecostal self would start to probably have a seizure. The thought of any type of liturgy I would confine to Catholicism or to the Church of England. It was dead, boring, and uninteresting. But I wonder, I wonder whether the liturgy that exists in the Old Testament, the feasts and the festivals, are there as a primary point of remembering the truth of who God is. And maybe we'll get a chance to look at some of those in the future. And I think we resist some of that liturgy at our own peril. 
which is why Jesus designs his own bit of liturgy when he breaks bread on that final night before his crucifixion. As often as you meet and eat, do this in remembrance of me. What's he doing? He's saying, you're likely to forget, therefore let me put a piece of liturgy in place that always makes sure you remember the truth of who I am. Does that make sense? I think it does make sense, doesn't it? So, how do we apply this? I, I don't know. You and I need rhythms in our lives that help us to remember. And uh, so even, I would say, one of the reasons the New Testament says don't forsake the gathering together, your gathering together, is not because God has meeting-itis. Part of my Pentecostal tradition was four services minimum on a Sunday and visiting an old people's home in the afternoon. So at times there were six different events to attend. This is not what God is advocating. I would reject that totally. But I wonder what he's saying. I wonder if, in particular, when we gather together, we remember who we are together, not just individually. That actually there's a corporate identity for the body of Christ to be recognized and affirmed as we gather together to worship God. That might be on a Sunday morning. That might be 12 of you around a table to dinner, as long as it's not just eat, drink, and be merry. God is a part of that time. It can be that as well. But I, I wonder. I wonder whether Israel remains Israel, even though it hasn't got a home through periods of its history, because it understands what it means to be Israel that isn't reliant necessarily on having a home but on owning a corporate identity being the people of God. So I've probably taken too much time. Let me recap briefly and at this point maybe invite the band to come and take their place. The gospel ultimately is an invitation to be more fully human and to use the language of what sometimes sounds like a self-centered uh, or, or a part of our individualistic culture, the gospel is not just an invitation to find your, the fullness of your humanity. It's, a, it's an invitation to find your true self. This is why Jesus reaches out and touches this man with swollen arms and legs. He finds the fullness of what it means to be fully human. And of course, it's a gift it's not earned. The gospel is an invitation to live generously, to give yourself away. And the gospel is an open invitation to anyone and everybody. But don't be blinded by your tradition or the life you think you have already. The psalmist invites us to taste and see for yourself. Father, we give you all that's been said this morning and pray that somehow, by your Holy Spirit, it would find a resting place in our hearts. God, deliver us from an obsession, from our performance-driven living, from our comparing ourselves with others, and help us to embrace what it means to be more fully human as we stop and rest. God, give us this heart to invest without expecting a return, to live life generously.
and help us not to be blinded either by our tradition or by our prosperity. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Ambercote Christian Centre. For more information about who we are, what we believe and how you can get involved, check out our website www.amblecoatchristiancentre.org.uk